This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we look at the unionization drive underway at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, with labor historian Mike Goldfield, whose recent book, The Southern Key, analyzed the history of efforts to unionize the South in the 1930s and 40s. That history is the context for the struggle to unionize Amazon in the same area as that fight failed in the 1940s. The current unionization drive is almost universally recognized as pivotally important and is being widely covered. The new Brookings Institution report says Amazon's union battle in Bessemer, Alabama, is about dignity, racial justice, and the future of the American worker. If successful, this will be the first unionized Amazon warehouse in the country and will also mark one of the biggest union victories in the South in decades, potentially galvanizing the labor movement and inspiring workers far beyond Alabama. We get Mike Goldfield's view. We then talk to Gabriel Winant about the expanding care economy. Gabe wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on March 18th about the underpaid and overworked healthcare workers whose jobs are critical and crucial to our society. The op-ed is titled, Manufacturing Isn't Coming Back, Let's Improve These Jobs Instead. And Gabe looks at how the care industry arose in Pittsburgh on the ruins of the industrial economy and how this sector dominates employment across American cities. And it is the face of the 21st century workforce. We'll get his insights on how to translate the recognition of the essential nature of the work they do caring for society into getting this sector paid their economic value, and that requires more political power. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Mike Goldfield back with us. We're going to be talking about a historic unionization drive at the Amazon plant in Bessemer, Alabama. Now, people have probably noticed that this drive is going on and it is historic. It is in Bessemer, Alabama, an Amazon warehouse where the 85% black workforce package and ship orders that they send out all across the South. The significance of this drive has been recognized by the mainstream press with articles that are favorable to the effort on the front pages. And a Brookings Institution report that just came out is entitled Amazon's Union Battle in Bessemer, Alabama is about dignity, racial justice, and the future of the American worker. That's really important. And if the workers at Bessemer vote to be represented by the RWDSU, which is the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, they will become the first unionized Amazon warehouse in the country. And it will also mark one of the biggest union victories in the South for decades, potentially galvanizing the labor movement and inspiring workers far beyond Alabama. Many of the reports have highlighted the comments of Daryl Richardson, who is a 51-year-old picker who drives two hours from Tuscaloosa to the Bessemer warehouse. He describes the dehumanizing nature of his work at Amazon, including the unrelenting pace, the risk of being terminated at any minute, and the constant surveillance. He says, you don't get treated like a person. They work you like a robot. You don't have time to leave your work workstation to get water, you don't have time to go to the bathroom. Well, Amazon's disproportionately Black workforce have risked their lives even further. They're the essential workers or part of the essential workforce during the pandemic. But as much as the profits have grown for Amazon, little has been shared with those workers. Last year, Amazon earned an additional $9.7 billion in profit. That's a staggering 84% increase compared to 2019. And the stock price has gone up commensurately 82%. And Jeff Bezos, as we all know, is one of the wealthiest men in the world. He added almost $70 billion to his wealth. And that's 38 times the total hazard pay that Amazon paid its 1 million workers since March, and that is now expired. 
Amazon has 1 million in its workforce, so it's the second largest employer. Walmart has 2 million. But because most of the workers at the Alabama Fulfillment Center are African-American, the unionization battle is also a civil rights act. And they've gotten broad solidarity from, you know, all around, including celebrities, Major League Baseball, NFL, Bernie Sanders, and even... President Biden tipped his hat by not specifically supporting them, but saying that they shouldn't be subjected to company intimidation against joining a union. So I think you could say then that the response by the company to the union union efforts has been textbook and a template on how employers fight unions today. It texts several anti-union messages every day to the workers. It forces them to attend information meetings where managers belittle unions. In general, it puts across a message implicitly that if the workers bring in a union, Amazon will respond with the threat or actuality of shutting down the warehouse and moving elsewhere. And meanwhile, they make use of their allies in local government to make it more difficult for the union drive. We've seen this in other struggles across the South, and I know Mike's going to talk about that. And just to finally situate this, the NLRB mailed out the ballots for this drive on the 8th of February, and voting comes to a close on the 29th of March. This is almost 6,000 workers, 5,800. And at that point, the NLRB, the board, will count the ballots. And if a majority of the workers vote to unionize, Amazon will be required by federal labor law to recognize and bargain with the RWDSU. So the question is whether or not that will open the floodgates, not just in the South, but especially in the South, but everywhere. And so this is quite a historical process. We couldn't have a better person with us than Mike Goldfield to comment because he's devoted his life to understanding not just workplace organizing at places like International Harvester and his academic career, but also and especially to the South. Mike is a former civil rights and labor activist and agitator. He's a professor emeritus at Wayne State University in Detroit. We're talking to him in Detroit and he's written a lot, but we recently reviewed on air his latest book that is getting a lot of attention. And that is The Southern Key, Class, Race and Radicalism in the 1930s and the 1940s. And Mike is going to be speaking at a webinar on that, on Amazon Bessemer and Alabama exceptionalism, labor lessons from the South on March 29th from 6 to 8 p.m. And we'll post how you can get to become part of that. Mike, I want to welcome you with all of that gigantic intro to help us unpack everything that's going on in Bessemer. So thanks for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Well, thank you very much, Susie. I'm Glad to be here. Okay. So as you point out, Mike, in many of your works, the workers organizing struggle tends to take place not incrementally person by person, but kind of in peaks and waves. And what that means is that new struggles like the one in Bessemer at Amazon are taking place in a situation where there's not already a big existing organized labor movement to draw on, learn from, and gain their experience. But on the other hand, there's a large pool of unorganized workers who need better jobs or jobs at all. So one of the biggest hurdles for workers is their fear of getting replaced. And given Amazon's clout, its national power and wealth, they worry about whether or not the company will make good on its threat to close down and they would then lose their job. So that, in other words, workers are vulnerable and yet courageous. So let's just begin then by talking about the lack of flexibility on the part of Amazon and the vulnerabilities of both the company and the workers. Can you begin by describing sure. that? Sure. So as you mentioned, Amazon has approximately a million employees in the U.S. today. So they don't really have much in the way of brick and mortar stores. They're the most advanced logistic company in the world. Logistics means not just warehouse, but shipping, trucking in and out. And if they're by ports, that also means longshore facilities. This is actually the forefront of the new economy. There's about 4 million logistic workers 
some of whom work for Walmart, but also FedEx, UPS, many other companies have these big logistic facilities. These workers potentially, if they all organize, have a lot of leverage because these facilities are just in time, goods flow in and they're gone through the facility within a matter of hours. It'd be difficult to move this brand new facility in Bessemer because it's the only facility that services much of Alabama and Georgia, as opposed to some of the facilities like in Los Angeles or Chicago, where there are multiple facilities. So potentially, these workers have leverage. In some ways, it's like a coal mine. There's a huge amount of investment and capital put in this facility, and they can't easily pick it up and move it the way certain types of industries like textile can pick up and move. But the important thing, as you mentioned, by themselves, they don't have a lot of leverage. But the potential of this drive for sparking a big upsurge seems to be great. So if workers in Bessemer, Alabama could organize, imagine what Amazon workers in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York or here in Detroit would be thinking. Boy, if they can do it in a deep south state like Alabama, why not us? And the history of union growth in the United States has been huge waves of upsurges. Very little takes place for long times. In the 1870s, with the development of railroads, railroad workers across the country struck and they inspired other workers to unionize. During World War I, with the upping of production, workers across the whole country Union membership went up from 2 million to 5 million from 1914 to 1920, spurred by the increased production and low unemployment. And the 1930s and 1940s that I write about, huge waves, uh, coal miners, iron ore miners, steel workers, all of whom were actually in the Bessemer area at that time, engaging sometimes in very radical labor and civil rights activities, a heritage which was still there in the 50s, 60s, 70s during the civil rights movement and even later and recognized at times. So so this is a heritage like that of the West Virginia coal miners, which we saw when school teachers went on strike. Many of them had signs, reminiscence of things that were probably done by their grandparents who were coal miners. So This struggle at Amazon in Bessemer not only draws on a rich tradition of unionization and civil rights activity, and let me also mention that by the early 1950s, this part of Alabama was the workers were majority unionized. So this has the potential to spark a big struggle. Nothing's written in stone beforehand. We don't even know whether the workers will win the union vote. It's also interesting that this is an area with lots of other production and activity going on. There's a lot, the the South in particular, in this part of Alabama, has a lot of food processing. There are 7,500 poultry workers who are unionized in Alabama, 1,200 at Pilgrim's Pride, which is a poultry processing plant, which is actually not that far from the Bessemer in Birmingham. Area And some of these workers from the union, from the retail wholesale department store workers union that are helping in the organizing and who are handing out leaflets outside. So this is an interesting situation as the media seems to recognize. And on the other hand, Amazon clearly has a lot of resources, union busting firms, legal resources, money for publicity to try to stifle the union drive. So we we really don't know what's going to happen at this point. Yeah, I guess I wasn't going to ask you for a crystal ball prediction, but we did do a a program here a few weeks back, maybe actually at the end of January with John Logan and talked about the union busting firms and history of Amazon's attempts to squash any attempt at unionization, not unlike you know, what Walmart has done too. And and that's what also makes this struggle so significant because these are sectors that have 
been very, very difficult to organize. But I want to go back because you started to talk about the importance of Alabama and the radical militant history that most people don't really know that much about. And then also just more generally, in the 1930s, there were all these interrelated industries. You hit a little bit on it, mining, iron, steel, auto, and they offered the kind of field for interconnected organizing. And it's said that there's a certain new industrialization taking place in the South because of the poverty of workers, the lack of workers' protections in terms of the welfare state. I mean, we know already that auto manufacturers from Germany and elsewhere chose to go to the non-unionized also workforce of the South. And then, of course, in more recent period of faced unionization drives. But does it make sense to talk about Bessemer and the region in, in these terms of because it's industrializing to that extent? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so absolutely. So Alabama... So there's been a big growth of the auto parts industry in Alabama in the past 10, 15, 20 years. There's also some very large auto manufacturing plants. And as I mentioned, food processing, poultry has gotten very big in Alabama. And you mentioned Walmart. So Amazon is very different than Walmart. Walmart, while it has some of this warehousing and um, Logistic things is primarily a brick and mortar operation. They have approximately 4,200, and these things change by the day. So the figures aren't exact. 4,200 stores, averaging 300 employees. So that's where most of their employees work. And this is a spread out operation where it's very difficult to have any leverage over a big company without organizing large numbers of these stores. Amazon, on the other hand, has two-thirds of its workers in these fulfillment centers, by my estimates. And when I have a square footage of their operations, so I'd estimate the number of employees based upon that. And they have 177 of these operations, and they're not just stores, empty buildings. They have a huge amount of computerized equipment, conveyors, Mm -hmm. and delivery systems. And the history of the area is interesting. So when the Depression hit in 1929, there was an upsurge around the country of unemployed organizing. And there was also famous civil rights cases, particularly the Scottsboro case. There were gun battles between sharecroppers and sheriffs in Alabama. And a lot of the support for these activities took place in Birmingham and Bessemer. So big marches, similar to what we've seen in Black Lives Matter, although somewhat more violent in terms of the repression, the rest, the beatings. And the unionization followed these marches and protests in Birmingham and Bessemer. So Bessemer had a mine, a, a big iron ore mill and a local, the Mascuta local and the mine mill and smelter workers was a left-wing union, originally stemming from the industrial workers of the world, the Western Federation of Miners, eventually becoming a communist-led union. They had coal mines and steel in the area. Alabama, by the early 50s, was the most unionized state in the South, 25% unionization. And to put that figure in perspective, there is no state in the United States today that has that high a unionization rate. That and, and did you say that was in the in the 50s? Early 50s. Early and 50s. So, and so because of the strength of the union movement in Alabama, they were able to elect a left-wing populist, Big Jim Folsom, in 1946, and then again in 1954, who had blacks and whites together come to his rallies. He supported ending the poll tax. He was quite the character. He invited the very flamboyant Harlem Congressman Adam Clayton Powell to visit him at the State House when he was in Alabama. He sent a limousine to pick him up, and he was photographed in the Birmingham papers drinking scotch with him. And he said, and this is a quote, that racism was a tool used by the capitalists to divide workers. So, and I don't want to imply that he was this consistent militant civil rights activist, but he was very different 
from other politicians in the Deep South. And the reason he was able to be that way is because of the unionized workforces in the various industries in the South. So today, as an industrializing area, it's not just Amazon, it's auto workers, it's poultry workers, there's other types of manufacturing. So the potential for a new union movement in the South, in Alabama, and certain other states too, where industry has flocked to, including South Carolina, exists. So if this potential took place, we wouldn't just talk about, you know, the shift of one or 2% higher black vote and more liberal whites from the suburbs supporting Democrats. We have the potential for something much more radical taking place. Well, let's go there. And I was just going to say, as you were describing what's going on in the South, you know, I'm certainly mindful of the Inland Empire here in Southern California, where you have, I think, 100,000 warehouse workers, not just Amazon, Target and Walmart, probably the old Kmart. I don't know all the firms, but they're all in one area and they have these huge warehouses and they're mostly undocumented immigrants and ex-cons and they don't have the kind of social weight. They have clergy and students and others behind them, but they haven't been as successful and there isn't the same it isn't the same as in the South that you're describing. And I, and I want to just take it to the next question, which is, you know, looking at how that sort of militancy spread in the 1930s, like wildfires, uh, very similar to what, you know, Rosa Luxemburg wrote about in the mass strike. And that is, you know, a sort of spontaneous process that begins And you talked about coal miners or just mentioned that. And of course, I think many people may have seen like Nate one and I have some understanding of, say, the coal wars and how that unionization drive, you know, developed. But what you talk about, too, is the way that the coal miners organized other industries and attracted other workers. And so there was this sort of rising let's call it, you know, penetration of this radical consciousness that developed spontaneously, but then, you know, branched out. So Amazon has a huge place today in our consciousness and working class. What could be expected? You just started to hint at it if they actually are successful. So what what the coal miners did is that they organized people and what people sometimes say today is wall to wall. They organized woodworkers. They organized school teachers in one county outside of Birmingham. They even organized school principals. And so there were other workers that didn't have as much leverage that the union movement supported. So, for example, in Birmingham in 1935, 1,500 black female laundry workers went on strike. They tried to fire them and coal miners and iron or uh, miners and steel workers, many of them coming from Bessemer, set up picket lines and shut the laundry down. Solidarity. They were not able to bring in replacement workers or what we would call scabs. And the history, you talk about the Inland Empire and the warehouses there. So in the 1930s, initially, very little people on the West Coast were organized. And radicals Mm -hmm. were trying to organize in the Northwest lumber and sawmill workers and loggers cutting down trees, and they were only marginally successful. But when the longshore strike took place in 1934, woodworkers across the West Coast organized, and the longshoremen a union, and there weren't as many warehouses or distribution facilities then, But the longshoremen tried to organize some of the truckers and the warehouse workers, and they got into big conflicts over jurisdiction with the Teamsters over those people, and much of the organizing fell apart. But in the same way, these warehouses that you're talking about in the Inland Empire are tied to longshore, and particularly now with the global economy, the the amount of goods coming in from China and other places, particularly on the West Coast, is so immense that these people play an even more critical part in the whole economy. And I think the the interesting that the pandemic for all of us has underscored how important this is. So for most of us, or for those of us who've been able to isolate and stay at home 
as opposed to being in doing these type of jobs that are at risk and on the frontline workers, the importance of these workers in warehouses, picking groceries and delivering things has both raised and important, but it's underscored to us how important they were. And also, in some ways, it's helped publicize how terrible the conditions these are. So Amazon workers, with every motion that they engage in, and every box and everything that they touch being recorded, as you indicated earlier, are so regimented and controlled. In some ways, it's parallel to the old Welsh miners who had foremen with shotguns standing over them, making sure that they didn't take a break or slow down in their work. Workers in a number of facilities have protested. There was a one-day strike in Chicago. There was some activity in Staten Island, particularly around safety, because the company has refused to implement many safety measures. And in addition, even though they agreed to do this initially, they have not informed workers of their co-workers who've gotten COVID. It's estimated that at least 20,000 Amazon workers have gotten COVID, and workers in many of these places don't know for sure how close they've been to somebody. The other thing that you mentioned about the bonuses, so with the initial relief bill, people got extended unemployment bonuses, and Amazon had to hire several hundred thousand workers quickly. So they raised the wages $2 an hour with bonuses. The actually first wave of relief ran out in May of last year. And that's when Amazon dropped the bonus, dropped the wages $2 an hour, even though, as you indicated, they were making tens of billions of dollars enough to pay, estimated that Bezos has made enough to pay every worker $100,000 a year and still be where he was before the pandemic. So, These are contradictions which are known to workers. And I think it's also one of the reasons why there's so much broad sympathy for the the workers. I mean, even preposterously, Ted Cruz, who's (laughs) one of these anti-union troglodytes, said he supports the workers. Of course, these Trump people have this thing also with Jeff Bezos, in addition to the whole Amazon thing. So there's been pretty broad support. The media has been, I mean, I've read dozens of articles, fairly sympathetic. I was really shocked. You know, I just would interrupt for a second at the New York Times on Friday. I think it was in the business section. There were big, long articles and they were generally, you know, they were the kind of articles that you might have seen in the left press in a different time. And I just wanted to, you know, bring that up because it takes us into the next question, Mike Goldfield. And that is, you know, you just talked about the broad sympathy. Well, there's never been, you know, with the pandemic, there was this new recognition, as you've just said, of who's essential. And, you know, we're going to follow this interview talking to Gabriel Winan about the healthcare and caring sector, which are very, very essential and more so than ever. But but it's also, as you, you're showing, that it's the essential packers and warehouse people and deliverers that are performing these tasks at great personal risk. And I've never seen the kind of broad sympathy for unions like we've never seen it i think at, at this level since you know what maybe the even the 50s and, and so it's all pretty amazing and it just seems like this fight is not balanced at all because there's so much sympathy and it, it wouldn't take much to tip it at least it, it seems that way so i want to go just from there to what is different from, say, what existed in the 1930s that you write about it in 40s when there was this rising labor movement and the CIO and radicalism, and more importantly, strong left-wing organizations, both the Communist Party and various Trotskyist organizations who went into industry to organize the unorganized in a huge wave of struggle. 
like they did in uh, in automobile and in General Motors. And they were also organizing outside, as you mentioned, you know, these great sympathy auxiliary actions. I'm thinking of, you know, the way it rolled out in Minneapolis during the Teamster struggles there. But you've also mentioned Longshore, which is, you know, we know very well here on the West Coast. Then we also had the Unemployment League with you know, musty organizing with his colleagues. Is this a, a huge minus for today? And are there any analogies today? And we see a lot of sympathy, but do we see that kind of organized weight, say, out of Occupy or Black Lives Matter or DSA? Yeah, so, so I think sympathy only gets you so far. And I think one of the issues is that the left-wing movement and groups is much more amorphous and diffuse than it was during the 1930s, although there does seem certain type of broad support. And certainly last summer, the Black Lives Matter protests exhibited tens of millions of people. And even in my estimate, was underreported in terms of the numbers and the news number of places that it took place. And while there's some organizational ramifications, there's a Black Lives Matter group in Birmingham that's supporting the Amazon workers, and that's all hopeful. But there's actually a surprising number of labor organizers. And through my book, The Southern Key, I've come into contact with dozens, if not hundreds, of Southern labor organizers who have various degrees of radicalism. And I think also the size, I mean, what does DSA have now? Almost 100,000 members, some of whom are doing labor organizing. So there are possibilities, seem to me, but they're diffuse in the present period. So we'll see what happens. And I think the, you know, the public support in terms of statements only gets one so far. So I don't put as much stock in anything that Joe Biden said. Danny Glover is actually went down there from the beginning of the vote and has been there handing out leaflets and working with people. Some of the more liberal Democratic politicians have said things, stronger statements of support, but I don't think that gets you that far. But we'll see. This, in some ways, is a very symbolic struggle, and as we mentioned earlier, could inspire lots of people, and that's the hope of some of us. This is an interesting period at present, and if the labor movement takes off, we'll be in a whole different situation and maybe having some different types of discussions. Um, I look forward about- to that. I want to just ask you finally to wrap up because we're out of time, Mike Goldfield. Are you cautiously optimistic? Are you refusing to say? You know, what do you think? So, so, so it's hard to know how the vote is going to come out. But clearly, the unionization effort so far has stimulated a lot of people. So in that one of those articles in The Times, the president of the retail wholesale department store workers union said that they had been contacted by over a thousand Amazon workers around the country who were interested in help in unionizing. So this is interesting. On the other hand, while the the employees are overwhelmingly African-American, majority female. This isn't like the 60s and 70s in auto where you had all white management. There's a predominance of African-American supervisors and management all the way up. The town of Bessemer, which is 72% black, 22% white, the last industries abandoned the place, which was steel, maybe 20, steel fabrication 20 years ago. It's had very high unemployment and poverty. So the elected officials, mostly African-American, were very big on working with Amazon to get them to build this facility and have been big supporters of Amazon. And then, you know, as the media has reported Amazon posts on the anti-union things on the stalls of the bathrooms Mm. and everything else and has one-on-one meetings, uh, captive audience meetings with employees. So nothing's written in stone. But I think even if they're not successful, this campaign so far has stimulated 
and inspired lots of other workers. Thank you so much. I guess we'll have to end it there and just hope or keep fingers crossed, but we'll check in, of course, after the 29th or maybe, you know, four or five days thereafter to see how it rolls out. But I want to thank you for emphasizing the key pivotal historical significance of this battle, even if it isn't one. But let's hope that it is. Mike Goldfield is a former civil rights and labor activist and agitator. He's a professor emeritus uh, at Wayne State University and currently a research fellow there. He's speaking to us from Detroit. He's written a lot of books on race and labor in the global economy. But the new one that everybody's talking about is the Southern Key Class, Race, and Radicalism in the 1930s and 40s. We talked about it right here. You should go out and buy it. And Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today on Jacobin Radio. And I have a discount coupon that I can send you if anybody's interested. Perfect. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm really pleased to have Gabe Winant back with us. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he has a new book. It's actually coming out this week. It's called The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. And it's about deindustrialization, the rise of the service economy, and care work. And while we're not exactly going to talk about that book, we are going to talk about, I guess, the fruit of the research from that book. And Gabe has succinctly put it all together in an op-ed that was published in the New York Times on March 18th, and it's called Manufacturing Isn't Coming Back, Let's Improve These Jobs Instead. And the subhead is Health care workers are crucial to our society, yet we reward them with low wages and dangerous conditions. So Gabe's work pinpoints a kind of central dilemma for the United States especially, but it could be boiled down to asking who pays for care. And, you know, in order to answer the question, it requires an investigation into the development and the nature of that industry that we're now calling the care industry. And as Gabe shows in his work, and as you can see almost everywhere, this is the growth sector of the American economy. But it's also a driver of social inequality because these are not your grandmothers, grandfathers, and fathers' jobs that were unionized and with benefits, but are instead insecure, low-paid, and mostly held by women and people of color. And so we're going to go through this, but first I just wanted to state this at the outset. If In places like Korea and Taiwan and Asia, where there's an expanding working class, the costs of reproduction, as we usually call this, are essentially financed out of transfer payments from the employed working class. So the workers, through their own taxation, pay for the cost of reproduction. This used to be the case in the United States as well before what we now call deindustrialization. So that's the overarching question about how it gets financed when you don't have a developing productive working class who provide profits. And what that means then, of course, is that in this period, like, you know, the United States had until the 1970s, there would have been less opposition for the government, let's say, to finance part of the cost of that sector, which would be health, education, pensions, all the rest of it. But today, it's hard to see why, for example, capitalists would be interested in this sphere unless it's subsidized. And so, you know, there's a lot more to say about that. And you give the example from Pittsburgh. And then you also say in your op-ed that this is really complex and and the nature of how these jobs get paid now is kind of a patchwork. And I'll just leave it there, but finally say that we're at a critical moment and Biden has said that he wants to bring back good paying jobs. So there's a lot here to unpack. And I want to welcome you back to Jacobin Radio. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be back here with you. It's really Uh, great to have you, and I'm looking forward to this. So let's just ask, first of all, about a capsule history of the rise of the care industry in Pittsburgh on the ruins of the industrial economy. How did it happen, and, you know, how did it emerge? Yeah, well, Pittsburgh is a good example because it's such an industrial city, you know, and I think the story you can tell about Pittsburgh, you could also tell about Detroit or Milwaukee or any place like this. And those places in turn exaggerate 
something about the New Deal state and kind of post-war liberalism generally. So in 1950 in Pittsburgh, almost half of the entire workforce was employed in manufacturing, steel primarily, but also mining, construction, rail, et cetera. And, you know, at the outset of the Cold War period, the industrial unions and the craft unions that represented those workers, they accepted the limits that were imposed on industrial unionism by and on the New Deal and on the kind of social democratic project through the Cold War and so on, right? And they, they secured private benefits for themselves. Workers' organizations, basically, at the end of the 1940s and beginning of the 1950s, seeing in particular that they were not going to win what we would now call Medicare for all, instead, you know, and understandably so, secured for themselves private arrangements, right, with U.S. Steel, with General Motors, and so on. And that is really the mechanism by which employment-based health insurance proliferated through the U.S. economy. It really began in the most important way with collective bargaining. That created, over time, a huge market for healthcare, which Medicare and Medicaid stepped in not to supersede or displace, but to round out, right, in the mid-1960s, because prices were driven up over the 50s and 60s for elders and for poor people. And so they had to create programs that would round out the existing system for the government as a buyer rather than a provider. So what that meant was you have all of this public and private welfare state apparatus that is basically organized to buy care for secure industrial workers. And care is a very labor-intensive business. And so who's going to provide that care? Well, it was the people who weren't secure industrial workers, right? It was largely women in a place like Pittsburgh, African-Americans, you know, in California, much more likely to be immigrants. So you have this kind of bifurcated structure of social citizenship. And then once you have so to get industrial job loss, the population really changes dramatically. So places losing factory jobs, they get older, they get poorer, and they get sicker, right? And as that's going on, people turn to whatever resources they can to, you know, keep body and soul together. And as it happened, the public-private health insurance regime was more, I mean, I don't want to call it generous, right? Because it's not that it was generous and it was so great, but it was more there for people than almost anything else was, especially for populations that were getting older and poorer and sicker. And so even as everything else is falling apart, you have these kind of aging steel workers in Pittsburgh just using the hell out of the health insurance system. I often give people the figure that in 1979, Pittsburgh generated 1.6 inpatient days per capita. So in other words, if everyone went to the hospital the same amount equally across the whole population in 1979, everyone would have spent a day and a half in the hospital that year. Now, of course, that's not what happened. What happened was a lot of people used the hospital like a nursing home. And you know we shouldn't fault them for that. But that caused the expansion of the system really rapidly and left these huge legacy healthcare systems behind that ran on low-wage labor. Right. So this is really important as a kind of background of it all. I think maybe we just go back over and just emphasize one more time, like presumably this industry. And I know that my son spent a couple of years in Pittsburgh and I visited and I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. And the formerly polluted valley there was now this gorgeous city because it was a healthcare center. And it was touted kind of as a model for other deindustrialized cities that they too could become like Pittsburgh, you know, and then you have to ask the question as you started to do it, well, you had this unionized workforce and they had benefits and they had retirement. So they could partially pay for all for this transformation and for these, you know, care. But one of the questions comes up is how much also came from subsidies from the federal and state, the expansion of Medicaid and Medicare, as, as you've mentioned. I think the demand is there, but how did the supply grow up? Yeah. Well, even in the private sector dimension, right, there's a public presence that's really important in regulating the labor market, right, and making health insurance something that employers have to bargain over. And it's worth saying, every time the steelworkers went on strike in the 40s and 50s, it got settled in the Oval Office because- they had a ton of power, you know, structural economic power. And the president, whoever it was, never wanted the steel industry to get shut down because that would slow the whole economy down. And so, you know, it's important to understand that even industrial collective bargaining in the private sector, you know, had this public political quality. But nonetheless, the expansion of the healthcare system to meet that demand, that was also a political sort of necessity, right? I mean, first, the pricing out of older people in the 50s and 60s that led to Medicare, but also, you know, Medicare and Medicaid themselves, right, which become just huge payers, by far bigger than any 
you know, private insurance company. And together today, they still are uh, about 40% of all healthcare expenditure. But they also do things sort of behind the scenes. They reimburse capital formation in hospitals really generously. You know, there's tax-free bond markets for hospital and nursing home expansion that have operated for decades now in places like Pittsburgh. You have the public in various ways subsidizing and supporting the expansion of this industry because it's a good way to solve a political problem, right? Which is what do you do with the human leftovers of deindustrialization, right? How do you process the people who've been left behind? And how do you find work for the people who, who still need it? I mean, I think it's actually really helpful to think of a comparison to the prison system. You know, I think that prisons are terrible and hospitals are not necessarily terrible, but I think structurally we can sort of imagine how these two things kind of can play a similar role in economically depressed places, bringing in public investment and creating employment and managing surplus populations. I think the really important point that you bring up, Gabriel Weinen, and and this is really kind of crucial because it is this patchwork of public-private. And you see that when I ask the question, since capitalists would not be very interested in a sphere that doesn't generate profit for them, you know, so why would they invest in it without demanding, let's say, if they get involved in it, that the government kick in most of the money? And you've showed that there was, you know, the expansion of the hospital sector and of the presumably all of the infrastructure for it and tax incentives and everything else. But now we see the situation and you pointed to it in your New York Times article that that private equity is heavily involved in nursing homes. And that is sort of the next step after hospital and doctors is, you know, we, we used to call it warehousing the elderly, but it's a real issue of where do people go and how does it get financed because it's incredibly expensive. And if there's any, I guess, profit center there, they're finding it, right? <laughs> Making the government pay for it. And there's so much opposition to making the government not only the payer, but the provider, right? As you said. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the complexity of that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's helpful to kind of think of it in comparison to a kind of enclosure process, right? That there were all of these social assets that were built up over the course of the you know second half of the 20th century, the post-war boom. You know, we don't want to romanticize them. They weren't democratic and held in common, but, you know, there was a significant amount of social access to them and, you know, social basis to their accumulation and construction. And, you know, then for a variety of reasons, the market kind of broke into this sphere or capital broke into this sphere increasingly. First through finance, as I was saying before, through bond markets that financed the expansion of hospitals in the 1970s and 1980s, and then increasingly directly into administration. That's most pronounced in, at least in Pittsburgh, a place like Pittsburgh, in nursing home and long-term care rather than intensive hospital care. But there are lots of places where there's for-profit hospitals too. But there's a real paradox here, a real kind of, or a real contradiction, which is that you just can't provide adequate and decent care and make a profit. It can't be done. At least I think the historical record thus far is pretty clear on that. And there's an obvious reason why, which is that it's, it's labor-intensive work, right? It's not really amenable to productivity increase in the way that, you know, we think of classic capitalist enterprises being. And for that reason, it both requires this publicly guaranteed market on the one hand, that Medicare and Medicaid constitute public subsidy for investment also, but it also requires sweating labor. They've never found a way around this problem. And this is the reason that, I mean, first of all, wages are low. As I say in the op-ed, quoting the sociologist Rachel Dwyer, If you break up all employment growth into quintiles, the bottom quintile, the lowest 20% in terms of wages of all new jobs, in the 1980s, it was, I believe, 56% were in the care economy in the bottom quintile. In the 1990s, it was, I think, 63%. And in the 2000s, it was 74% of all new bottom quintile jobs were in the care economy. Uh, It's just astonishing. you You can also think about it in terms of staffing. And this is the thing that if you talk to like any healthcare worker, almost always the first issue that they'll tell you is that, you know, there's just not enough of us. And that's, you know, I mean, that's especially a design, of course. Yes. Right. It's it's just, I mean, it's true in hospitals, it's especially pronounced, I think, and we've seen it really painfully in long-term care this year. Right. Well, I was going to ask about that because everything has been demonstrated, exposed, exacerbated by the pandemic. So we've seen, you know, there's not enough intensive care units. There's not enough skilled nursing 
and medical personnel to deal with it. And then we had this pandemic where you've needed nothing but this public health infrastructure, hospitals with intensive care, trained personnel, and people who can actually care for the population that have been stricken by this pandemic and keep everything else as well. So there's been this development that, let's call it, I guess, the development of this patchwork that you've described that made it possible, but it was one that shut hospitals everywhere, shut down clinics, and tried to rationalize healthcare. But you show, and you just stated, that this doesn't really work well when it's rationalized because, you know, we're talking about humans. I guess you could have defective products, but you can't kill humans or, you know, you shouldn't be able to kill humans. So well, they do. Yeah, but they do. And we know that. And even if you wanted to compare, say, the rollout of the vaccine, where the problem in Europe right now is that they were trying to get it on the cheap because they negotiate so toughly with pharma. And so what they couldn't get the price they want, they said, "Okay, we're not going to take those. And they roll it out in a more slower way. I really want to come back to this one because. Your article is incredibly, is optimistic because you're basically saying it's possible to recognize how crucial these jobs are to society and pay for them. And yet, you know, we've just talked about where's the incentive to pay for them if it's private? And is this something that can be done, you know, under capitalism? Yeah. Well, you know, I think here's the basic source of my optimism. 14% of the workforce now is in what the census calls healthcare and social assistance. It's the largest category of that type. It's grown steadily over, you know, decades now. That's in the type of category, like manufacturing, transportation, whatever. Healthcare and social assistance is now the largest one. There are cities, as I say in the article, where it's not 14%, but 20 or 25%. There are neighborhoods, and I'm including this in the op-ed, I looked up in the Bronx, the neighborhood of Co-op City, there are 37% of people in that census tract who are employed work in healthcare and social assistance. If you look in West Philadelphia, if you look in parts of Detroit, if you look in parts of Chicago where I live, you'll find very similar figures at the neighborhood level. So frankly, I mean, this is optimistic. I can't say that I know this to be true, but I think we can begin to see a class formation process underway. And that class formation process is driven by the simultaneous necessity of these workers as a group, right, that we socially require of them. In fact, we socially require them more and more every day and every year, right? That's why they're growing in number. And at the same time, they're individually disposable. An interesting point. Just say the difference between socially required and socially necessary. (laughs) Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, socially necessary, I is a kind of more, I think of it as a more objective concept, right, about Under what is required to make a particular kind of commodity. Here, I'm really saying something political, right, which is that it's been produced through a kind of political process embodied in, you know, institutions that we've inherited all the way from the New Deal, and they're kind of warped now and strange, but they still exist and shape this market in such a way that, you know, as I say in the book, I mean, this is the reason no one can figure out how to shrink healthcare costs ever, right, is because it's actually doing... The healthcare industry's growth is doing really important political work, holding society together in the aftermath of deindustrialization and in the context of rising inequality. That drives the growth of this workforce. It then has to bear the contradiction on its back. And, you know, I think there are reasons to be pessimistic about the prospects of workers' organization in this industry also. We can talk about those. But I think there are real reasons for optimism on that basis. And I'll just wrap this kind of answer up by saying... In fact, I go so far, and on this podcast I can say, I think, I go so far as to say that, you know, we sometimes talk on the left about the question of whether the kind of, you know, Joran Thurborn calls the grand dialectic, right, between the increasing socialization of labor and the private ownership of capital actually continues to operate, whether a kind of grand contradiction continues to operate or not. And I would point to this phenomenon that we're talking about here of this growing workforce that we both require and dispose of constantly at the individual level as a kind of instance of that dialectic actually still in operation. This is really brilliant. I want to just let listeners know, I'm speaking to Gabriel Winant and his book, which is coming out this week, is called The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. It looks at Pittsburgh, but his op-ed that was published on the 18th of March in the New York Times 
is saying essentially these, you know, manufacturing jobs are not coming back. Let's make the care industry jobs, the good jobs. And you've just kind of wrapped that up. And so I guess, you know, we have a couple more issues I think we should talk about. And one is that why it was in Pittsburgh. And you said that, you know, that it was unionized jobs. They had benefits. They had the sort of demand and maybe even like the confidence of demand to make sure that this took place in Pittsburgh. And it's not the same way elsewhere, but you're talking about how it could be. And we're seeing very important unionization drives right now. For example, in Bessemer, Alabama, it's not unrelated, I think, to have these kinds of jobs that we're calling essential on and moving products and delivering them and packing them is not exactly the same thing as making certain that humans don't die, you know. But on the other hand, it is part of this dispensable, underpaid, overworked, overstretched workforce. And so we're seeing lots of arguments politically about this. And you've been pointing to political solutions to this issue because it's left to private companies. It's not going to happen without the demand of the workforce. So what do you think, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax? What kind of political struggle and what kind of, let's say, mechanisms can you see emerging that might address this issue? Yeah, well, I think in the long term, capital has to actually be driven out of care. I I don't think there's a solution to it outside of that. It's incompatible with humane working and caring conditions. Yeah, that's for reasons that we've been talking about. But, you know, that's a tall order. I grant that that's a tall order politically. And I think that there are things that we can imagine that make that easier to move toward in the nearer term. So what the op-ed was saying was that, you know, given that Medicare and Medicaid pay for, you know, 37 cents out of every healthcare dollar in this country, on average, they have tremendous power over the industry, right? Almost every provider needs their certification, and they actually have a good deal of leeway. The federal government has a good deal of leeway, uh, and, you know, states potentially too, which co-administer Medicaid, in dictating conditions, working conditions to providers. And I think that that has not been an avenue that's been sufficiently explored. One could imagine, I mean, some of this would require legislation. Some of it could be done administratively, potentially. But one could imagine how the federal government might use the power of certification, which a hospital or a nursing home cannot survive without, to insist that actually current labor practices lead to unsafe conditions for patients, for example. Similarly, Medicaid requires that nursing homes allow for and kind of recognize and, you know, we might say almost bargain with family councils of residents. Now, that's not something that's commonly been taken up on. You know, that option is not, I think most people don't know about it, but it's a requirement of Medicaid that a nursing home administration has to actually sit down with and listen to, and in fact, facilitate in various ways, provide space to meet in this kind of thing for family councils. So there are all of these kind of opportunities throughout the law that are the reflections of the fact that this industry was the creation of the public in the first place, and that the people who work in it are basically subcontracted public employees with the nursing home or whoever being the subcontractor. They give us the opportunity, I think, to think about how to begin to, you know, raise expectations about what workers and patients are owed by these companies that are carrying out a kind of public and social purpose for private gain. Just finally, because we're almost out of time, but you brought it up in various ways. And I was thinking of, you know, say how the VA operates or how the national health care system in Britain operates. And there you'd have nationalized health care. Whereas the arguments that we hear in the United States are essentially to nationalize healthcare delivery, to pay for it, but not to actually be the provider, not just the payer, right? So single payer is completely the wrong way of describing it. But is that sort of what you're arguing for, that all these steps would be on the way to kicking the private out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think you can kind of scale up to increasingly utopian levels of imagination as you want to. I don't uh, want to call it utopian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but, you know, some version yeah. of that vision can be important. But I think, you know, as I think you're implying, it's important to imagine how we might get there from where we are, right? To actually root whatever vision we have in material processes that are ongoing. And so, you know, one claim that I really, I do think this is true, is that we, we have to look at the irresistible expansion of this sector and of this workforce in our society as containing an egalitarian possibility kind of turned on its head. Right? A society in which people are committed to taking care of what, more and more of what we do collectively 
socially is take care of each other, right? That's actually a society that is not compatible with capitalism if you proceed past a certain point. And the problem is right now to carry out that function, we just conscript poor women to do it rather than take it on collectively as you, as I think we might do. So, I mean, in the very near term, right, there's a kind of immediate question of how can care workers' power be increased? How can the conditions of care be improved, uh, even short of nationalizing even health, the health care uh, insurance industry, which is what Medicare for all means and what is actually politically part of our discourse? I think a step beyond that is imagining driving capital out of healthcare provision, right, in the form of hospitals and nursing homes, which, I mean, do we even think we should have nursing homes in the form that we have them? One could imagine that as a kind of federal ownership model like the VA or the NHS in England. One could imagine also workers' ownership or kind of worker and patient control in some formation. And, you know, I think finally, to kind of fully proceed down this path, one could imagine a world in which the provision of care is not alienated from the fabric of life and, you know, concentrated in institutions in the same way, except in cases of like intense medical need, right? And in fact, if we are, if we can become a non-capitalist society where more of us have to take care of each other and are committed to taking care of each other in the course of daily life, you can imagine parts of those functions being actually integrated into the fabric of daily life, as opposed to being exported onto the most vulnerable sections of the labor market. I can't thank you enough for this, Gabe Wine. And I have to just say, I was in a study group way back in the 90s where we were thinking about what a social society would look like and where most of the people would be employed in the care sector, or we didn't call it the care sector, but in education and care, because those were the important and actually fulfilling jobs that exist in any economy. And I want to thank you. And we'll come back and look at this some more when your book is out and we can talk about it. And the book is called The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. You can pre-order it right now. But in the meantime, you can look at Gabe's op-ed in the New York Times, Manufacturing Isn't Coming Back, Let's Improve These Jobs Instead in the New York Times. Gabe Winant is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he writes widely. I think you should follow him. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.